0: WDBM, East Lansing. 89FM, The Impact.
1: You're listening to Impact Exposure.
2: Exposure gives a
3: voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University,
1: this is Impact Exposure.
2: Good evening and welcome. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman, and you are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. Tonight, we talk with the president of Detroit Bikes and find out how a business starts in a city like Detroit. Then we hear from the organizers of a protest to stop George Will from speaking at commencement this winter wrap up the show i sit down with the organizers of v-day lansing but first i sit down with the founders of a charity project called classroom for benson you are listening to exposure on the impact 89 fm Right now, we're sitting down with Kirk Mason, and we have Sarah Scott on the phone to talk about a project that they've started called uh, Classroom for Benson. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, So, how about you tell us a little bit about this, guys?
4: So, um, this project originated um, last May. I went on a study abroad through MSU to Uganda, um, which uh, introduced me to uh, Benson Bamatura. Um, We heard of his passing in last January, I think, and... uh, I uh, kind of wanted to write his, his memory there tell a person he was. Um, and so, we talked with colleagues uh, in Uganda just to see how, how we could, uh, you know, give back to his community and show his family how much he's, he's impacted the world, and it was uh, suggested that we support his children's education, because that meant a lot to him. Um, so, the idea to build a classroom to sponsor his kids' education started.
3: And then after that, uh, the project kind of went to another level when we started to work with more like conservation-oriented organizations through Michigan State, and then also over in Uganda, we kind of developed the idea to make this children's show uh, called Ugandan Explorers, where we could uh, take like big, big, big topics like water systems and food sustainability and things like that, and make it into something that children could understand. So we could you know, uh, like bring learning to on a global scale. Rather than just in the in our classroom in Uganda, so a bunch of projects have kind of started from uh, this one, the the original project, which was to build the classroom for Benson.
2: All right, and so this uh, this classroom that you're building, it's kind of like a virtual thing now. Um, you got a website. Uh, it's it's bigger than a classroom, right?
3: Well, the classroom uh, there's actually going to be a physical classroom. Like we are going over there to oversee the construction of like an actual physical classroom but uh, we do have a website and um, we'll be doing a lot of online like educational things for for kids anywhere.
2: Um, And so who was who was Benson? Um, I I know you mentioned that he passed away um, not too long ago but you know what what did he do? Why why is this uh, in his memory?
4: Uh, So Benson was uh, a local bird guide from Uganda and also an avid conservationist of that area. Um, we worked with him a couple of days while we were uh, in Kabali National Park, and uh, you know, he traveled around with us and, and led tours and kind of taught us about the different bird species. Um, and he, he's a huge name in Uganda, so um, I know that he has identified over 750 bird species of bird and also added a lot to scientific database of information on the uh, the Shillies, crimson bird, which is a pretty rare finch species over there. Um, he so he he's added a lot to, behavioral yeah, information and also distribution, um, and then, you know, also a conservationist too. So fighting to conserve the Virgody uh, Wetland region and also uh, a lot of just the the Ugandan rainforest as well.
3: He was also just a a great friend to a lot of people. Like he had a he had a a, a large group of students from Michigan State who had met him from the study abroad that Sarah went on, uh, who were in support of this idea of like build, building this classroom in his
2: honor because he he had such a, a a wide you know large amount of friends all over the world. All right, and then the goal with this classroom um obviously you guys were talking about uh like sustainability and and things like that. Um is it, it's trying to educate um uh children in in mm-hmm. Uganda of these kinds of greater issues or or is it something else? What what's the, what's the goal? Well,
3: Sarah I- and I are starting uh, and kind of um, leading a concert, like an after-school conservation group in Uganda that will kind of go over some of these topics. But we're also, um, like we said before, like those Ugandan Explorer videos. That, that extends uh, beyond just our classroom. We'll be talking about topics like that with everybody. Like I know Sarah and I have contacted our elementary schools, and I, and I have friends in Peace Corps working in Tanzania who want to be a part of it too. So just anywhere that there are kids who want to learn, they can learn from us.
2: Sarah, were you saying something?
4: Uh, uh, th- just that, um, essentially. And uh, we, we, we're making partnerships with uh, schools back here just so uh, if, if they have questions about their their of the world, just connect classrooms here to our classroom and you need to, uh, to open a bug and, um, you know, be another tool for education, uh, regardless of the area.
2: You guys are, who, who's all contributing to this? I mean, obviously you two. Um, who else is involved?
4: Uh, uh, so essentially it's, um, it started out, it was us two and then, um, two of the, uh, the instructors of, of the course. Um, but then, uh, we ended up taking over pretty much full control of the, of the project. And so, uh, we've been working to set everything up, um, as far as like funding goes, it's mostly friends and family at the moment, uh, who's in supportive of, of us and our project.
3: It's been a pretty difficult, um, challenge to to raise all the funds because we're not a nonprofit organization we don't have the like 501c3 status which prevents uh, organizations like large organizations from getting a tax deduction from donating to us so mm-hmm. that's actually been a, a, a big challenge it's we've had to rely on private donations only and um those typically come in smaller amounts so it's it's been a long time uh we've been funding and um yeah it's been a big challenge
2: especially that aspect all right. Um could you guys tell me a little bit more about uh about these these videos that you're talking about? The Ugandan Explorers, is that right?
3: Mm-hmm. So kind of in the style of Bill Nye, um where he takes, you know, astrophysics and makes it uh makes it so that a 10-year-old can understand it. We want to do the same thing but just for uh in the area that we are. So we're next to the Kibale National Forest, which is uh really diverse uh for like ra- rainforest um right on the equator and uh there's a lot to be learned in there so we are hoping to take some some of the things that are <clears throat> that are in there and then also uh I'm also working with the Michigan State University Center for Regional Food Systems to produce a documentary on food su- food systems and like local food systems so um there's just a lot of different topics we want to cover and make it so that uh, kids can learn about it.
2: All right. If uh, somebody was listening to this and sounded pretty interested, um, what could they do to maybe, uh, not just donate, but maybe get involved or, you know, do something else?
3: There's a lot of ways that people can get involved. Um, if, uh, donating is one way, but obviously not everyone can donate. Um, if you can, just share the project, show your friends or your family or anybody who you think is interested in any sort of conservation work or uh, advocacy for children's education um, everywhere in the world or in Africa uh, this is something that you might want to show them it's It's a cool project that has a lot of um a lot of facets like we not only are we building this classroom for people but we're also promoting conservation and and working with a lot of different organizations so it kind of covers a lot of ground um, so just sharing the project, sharing the Facebook or the website or anything like that, or getting in contact with us about things you want to see, like we're open to suggestions for our Ugandan Explorers videos. If you have a, a topic you want to see covered, we are down to uh, look into that, do some research, interview some people and make a video about that if you think it would benefit some children or you just want to see it yourself.
2: Um, I, I know that you you have some video experience. Are you, are you the one Behind these videos, um, who's who's directing or creating these videos?
3: I did study video at Michigan State University, and I've done uh, I've worked in East Africa before and around the world making videos. Um, but the both of us are going to be putting these together, and, and I'm I'm pretty excited. It's going to be uh, Sarah has a little bit of experience making video, I think, but um, the both of us are definitely going to be really involved in the production process.
2: Um, are there any other uh, projects besides? Uh, the physical classroom and the these videos, uh, Uganda Explorers, that you guys are working on, or is that essentially it?
4: Um, we I guess uh, we also have, we're opening uh, like a pen pal, like a virtual pen pal system between, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, students that we will be working with uh, in Uganda and then students here. So like Kirk mentioned earlier, uh, we've connected to a few classrooms uh, ranging between third grade and sixth grade so far, um, so we're still in the process of working that out, um, and we're also looking to get involved with um, potentially teaching English to the teachers there as well. Um, so uh, we're TEFL certified, which is teaching English as a foreign language. So um, we'll be trying to to work that in into the project as well.
2: Obviously, this project is called a classroom for Benson, but. Uh... Would what would you say what inspired this whole thing was benson
4: uh, i definitely think that like he he was the catalyst for the project um you know ju- and then just his overwhelming support for his ch- children's education was definitely an inspiring factor um education is you know i think the best gift that you can give and uh, this classroom will help provide not only opportunities for his own children which would be honoring benson's legacy but also um just the whole entire community too, providing a little bit more space um for for the community to have a more productive environment for the children to obtain an education.
3: I never I never met Benson, but um just hearing Sarah's determination to, to try and make to try and help his family uh and his community um inspired me to to join in the project too. Um yeah he obviously must have made a big impact a big positive impact on a lot of people uh, to have this supportive of a community um you know show what they can do for him
2: are there any like final things that you'd like to say anything that if our listeners you know have heard maybe part of this or have this that you'd like to you know clarify or just let them know about this project
3: just uh stay tuned there's a lot of really really awesome environmental educational material that is going to be coming out of this project on a lot of different in a lot of different ways and I, I hope that people are uh, are willing to to follow our adventure when we go there and learn with us
2: if any listeners out there are interested uh, the website is classroomforbenson.com uh, you can donate there or just learn more about the project thanks so much for coming in guys
3: thank you thank you
2: You just heard Kirk Mason and Sarah Scott with a charity project called Classroom for Benson. Up next, I'm joined by the president of Detroit Bikes. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. sitting down here with Zach Paschak, the president of Detroit Bikes, a bike company located in Detroit. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, So what what exactly is Detroit Bikes? Can you tell us a little bit about it?
5: Sure. So we're a a bike frame manufacturer, and what's significant or kind of a, a big deal is that we have the capacity to double Every year in the United States, sixteen million bikes are sold, and of those sixteen million, only fifty thousand are made in the U.S. and usually those are built by custom hand builders, but uh, the factory that that uh, Trade Bikes just built uh, has the ability to make fifty thousand bikes a year. So wow. we're sort of rebuilding an industry that's uh, that hasn't been in this country for a long time.
2: Wow. When when did this um when did this company start?
5: Two thousand
2: eleven. 2011, okay, so it's relatively really new.
5: Yeah, so it started in 2011, but we only started producing bikes a year ago. Oh, wow. Um, We had to do R&D and prototyping and find a space and build it out.
2: There's also something um, a little bit different about it, is that from what I've noticed, uh, you've only made one type of bike. Is that right?
5: We have two types right now.
2: Okay, so you added another?
5: Um, But We did. Yeah, it's minimal. I, I mean, we're sort of we're trying to play into a forward-thinking way of, of uh, approaching bicycles. So the bike industry right now is really interested in high-tech stuff and you know all this new stuff every year and uh, you know really expensive stuff. But what well, my goal is for this company is to, is is to uh, facilitate this new style of cycling where people aren't really so into their bikes so much as they are It's just the idea of taking a bike around. They just want something easy and simple. So we make bikes that, uh, you know, it's not fitted to your exact size because it doesn't have to be. That's sort of a, that's a lie. People were told about bikes. Another lie that people were told about bikes was if you need a ton of gears, if you really don't, there's no need to have 21 gears on a bike. That's, that's actually completely insane. Yeah, I mean, think of having twenty-one gears on your car. Why would you shift through twenty-one different different things? You know, cars have four, have right. four different uh, gears on them, and, and uh, that's about as much as you want to shift.
2: It, it seems like maybe, uh, maybe this is a misconception, but that the more gears you have, maybe the faster that you can go. Is there any truth to that?
5: There's absolutely no truth to that. Yeah, it's a, it's a total misconception. The, the high gear of one on a three-speed bike and the low gear of three on a three-speed bike are the same as the high gear on a 21-speed and the low gear on a 21-speed. The gear differential is, is usually um, fairly similar. It's it's just an issue of how many times you want to switch between getting from the high to the low. So, yeah, there, I mean another misconception you have about bikes is that they need to be super lightweight. You know, there's there's no there's no reason for you to need a carbon fiber bike. And, and and these are things I mean, when you're riding a bike around town you don't need these super extreme um features on your bike. But a lot of people think that when they get into um when they get into a they go to a bike store and someone, you know, turns their nose up at them and convinces them that they need these these certain fancy features, so what we're trying to do with the bike that we build is, is is sort of open the door to new cyclists by making it as easy as possible and, and really making a bike that's all you really actually need for you know, for basic daily use.
2: Um hearing hearing this story about how you make one or two types of, of bikes, but you kind of mass produce them, you make a lot of them. It reminds me of um, you know, the early automobile industry. Uh, maybe what is it? The Model T, I believe, that was just mass produced, and there was a benefit to it, right? That you could get it for cheaper. Mm-hmm. Is that the same kind of uh, mentality that you're taking there? The that if you mass yeah. produce it, then you can get it to the 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 uh, public cheaper.
5: For sure. So that a lot of bike stores would say that uh, you know they wish they could sell American-made bikes, but they just can't because they're too expensive. So the goal was to show that that wasn't the case, and the way that we can get our cost low is by making um, a high volume of bikes. So it's still, it's still higher. You know, the cost on the bike is higher than what you'd see at, you know, Costco or Walmart. We're we're making we're trying to make a quality bike, a bike that you're going to actually want to ride, and that's going to last you for a long time. But um, within that next tier of bikes. You know, we're on the more affordable side. And 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 that's absolutely uh in line with that idea of, of mass production.
2: Another thing is these aren't just American bikes, right? These are your factories located in Detroit, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so um well well one, talking about the early automotive industry, obviously Detroit has a a lot of uh history there. Is that is is there any reason to Detroit that you uh is there is the reason one of the reasons that you may have chosen Detroit as a city is because of their automotive history?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, this bike is made by a car people. It's a it's a car person's bike, uh, which maybe sounds like a contradiction, but it doesn't have to be. Um, right now, they're in the sort of politics of cycling. There can be sort of a confrontational attitude between cars and, and cyclists and vice versa. But that's not, it that doesn't need to be the way that it is. You know, bikes are something that are a complement to your other ways of getting around. And this bike is made by, made by people who who learned their skills by making cars. And, uh, you know, the, the reason we can get a factory is because we're in a town where there are factories. And, you know, there's a, a welding supply shop down the street. There are people who uh, have supply chain management degrees who are looking for jobs. <laughs> you know, so all, all of these things are, are, are directed to the auto industry. And I think that that's kind of the, the most beautiful full circle thing about the company is that you know, that it's, it's coming from the auto industry. These are auto industry guys who are, who are going to be part of building a new industry in, in the country.
2: Um, I know you mentioned that the frame was mass produced in Detroit. Um, is the rest of the bike from Detroit? Um, what 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 other parts of it are contributed to Detroit?
5: So for the manufacturing part, it's the frame, but the frame is pretty complicated. There's a lot of different parts on the frame, and everything on the frame is made uh, by by us by hand in in the city. And we also make the chain guards and the racks. Uh, and over time, we'll add more pieces to that. So we'll end up making the fenders and we'll make the handlebars. Um, but then the other, some of the other pieces are just pieces that, uh, you know, I would need to build another factory or two to to make. And some of them are very complicated, like the hub on the bike. It's an internal, internally geared hub. And, I mean, it's just a very high-tech kind of thing, and it's, it's not something we could do right now. So we buy those hubs, and we buy you know, things like the grips and the brakes um, from
2: other factories. You mentioned earlier about you know Detroit and um, you know people looking for jobs. The the uh, supply manufacturers that are probably looking for jobs. It's not a secret that Detroit isn't doing all that well economically. Um, mm-hmm. So why choose Detroit to uh, start a company like this?
5: Um. In part, for me, it's a personal thing. I just fell in love with the city when I came to see it, and that you know, that's for a number of reasons. Um, part of it is its history and, and you know its struggle and the complications here, and and mostly it was the people, though. That, you know, everyone I've met in the city is just just a very weird, uh, weird type of person, but is special uh, and and vibrant. You know, type of person. It's not you know. I I don't know if I would meet these people if I were, if I was in Connecticut. Maybe I would, but um, I I suspect I would. Uh, you know, I just I love the people in, in the city. So so there's partly a personal thing, and then and then in terms of the company, it's what we talked about earlier. You know, that there are factories here that are for sale for cheap. Um, there are. You know, welders, there are fabricators, there are machinists, there are, there are used lathes that we can buy. So the, there's just kind of the infrastructure here, um, and, and because of because of the auto industry, um, and, and just you know, Detroit's um, uh, manufacturing kind of legacy. So that's around and it's available. And then the, the other thing is that the world is interested in Detroit. Um, it's this is a city that. Uh, you know m- music has come from that has touched people's hearts around the world um it w- you know it was the arsenal of democracy this was a city that that manufactured uh, you know the first mass produced automobiles that changed the world' a city that has had a dramatic impact on on uh, on the world and I think that as much as sometimes within the United States people may be Feel ashamed of Detroit, and especially people in Metro Detroit, kind of, have sort of, you know, snubbed the city and and uh, and you uh, know felt embarrassed of it or ashamed of it. That it's a significant, important city, and and people around the world see that. So making something here makes a lot of sense. You know, I think people want that. They, they want to, to have something that they own that they bought that comes out of this place and is
2: made by these people. You said um, kind of uh, two statements that I kind of wholeheartedly agree with you in, but they kind of contradict each other at the same time. You said that, um, you know, at first that one of the appeals to the city is kind of its history and its hardships and what it's been through, and then that other people are very um, embarrassed of Detroit. You know, it's it's kind of shameful how, how hard it's fallen, and it's... Um, you know, there's kind of a paradox there because there's definitely some sort of charm to what it's been through, right? That I feel like a lot of people um, look to Detroit as the city that, you know, has been through the most. No other city can say they've been through that.
5: Yeah, no, I think no other city in the United States, I mean, this is the largest city to declare bankruptcy. And I mean, I don't think there are that many cities in the U.S. with thousands of burnt-down houses that are just, around. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it has been through a lot. I, I don't know if that contradicts it, though. I, I mean, I, there are those those two things I think are both true. Uh, people, some people, especially people in Metro Detroit and the suburbs of Detroit, are, are ashamed of the city and embarrassed of it and they say weird things about it. You know, race has a lot to do with that. Um, unfortunately, backward mentalities um but um but then you know at the same time
2: Have you ever noticed any other businesses uh, growing businesses, new businesses popping up in Detroit?
5: There are lots of companies. I think that the the companies that have been most successful and have gotten you know the widest recognition have been service based so for the last five years it's made a lot of sense and it still does um, but definitely for the last five years, opening a restaurant in town made a lot of sense opening up you know a yogurt. those types of things, just things that um, exist in other cities, things that people want to have, um, the places people want to go. The city was very underserved by you know, basic kind of fun amenities for people. And uh, and so those, those types of places have been, I know. been huge. They've been very successful, and there's lots of them. There's lots of good stuff that's open in the last little
2: world. I've heard uh, a couple... News stories about uh, pop up businesses, um, or something along those lines. Uh, Have you have you heard of these?
5: Mm. Yeah, I actually met the woman who who started the first pop up. It's a Filipino lady in New York who who did a pop up restaurant. Um, Very cool lady. Uh, And so the pop up idea basically it's just a way to get yourself going without having to go through all the like legal and uh, and other hurdles that you go through getting a physical space, so it allows you to say, "Hey, like I'm a I'm a decent cook, and I'm going to do a I'm just going to like serve some food to people to see if this concept works." So you do something called a pop up by basically not having your own physical space, but just appearing in in someone else's. So the the way that the, the lady in New York did it was there was a restaurant that was only open at night was able to convince them to let her go in and, and serve to get a lunch uh, for a week or something. And uh, and so yeah, the, those are happening in I think to some degree that happens because it's a trend. I think that people think the idea of a pop-up is really fun. And it is. You know, it is fun. Um, but some uh, of that is, I think, so I think sometimes some of the stuff happening is we try, just like, trying to figure out how to echo what what people think is happening in other cities, um, so it's not necessarily just because of the need for space. I mean, Detroit's a pretty easy space to get, uh, mm-hmm. a pretty easy place to get a retail space. So I think in New York, pop-ups maybe made a little more actual sense, but maybe maybe not as much here. But they make sense here just because they're kind of on trend.
2: Wow! So you done definitely have seen some pop-ups around Detroit. Oh yeah. I guess then uh just for a final question, uh where do you where do you see Detroit in maybe ten years? Any big changes? Tough
5: one. It, yeah, like it's it's a really good question. I mean we're definitely on an upward trend. House prices are going up. Um but at the same time I think population's still declining. That said, uh the city is definitely a more attractive place to live, services are improving. Uh, the debt issue has been dealt with, I think, in an amazing way, for the multiple levels of government and, you know, people of different interests to get together and resolve our, our bankruptcy. It uh, was a massive story. I mean, it's it should be talked about on the nightly news and, and uh, you know, it hasn't been, but I think it was incredible what just happened here in the city. So, it, you know, it's moving up. That said, 10 years goes by really fast. I mean, I, I maybe because I'm getting older, I don't think ten years is enough time. You know, I think we need we need seventy five years to see to see a real um solid change in the city. So I think ten years from now it'll it'll be better than it is now. But um I don't know exactly what can get done really that fast.
2: All right. Thanks so much for coming in. Take hey, glad. Okay. Next up is a protest against the commencement this winter. Mara Abramson keeps us in the know.
0: And everybody
2: sees. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. Right now, I'm joined with Mara Abramson. Yeah. And we're here to talk about uh, a protest uh, on campus. Can you tell us a a little bit, a base for it?
1: Um, I can. So as listeners may or may not know, um, Washington Post columnist um, George Will will be speaking and will be honored at the December 13th commencement ceremonies. Um, Will is currently probably most known for his um, stance on the issue of sexual assault on college campuses. And um, he is what is known as a rape apologist. And um, he his belief is that um, students have um, started to make up cases of assault in order to receive certain um, special privileges on campus. So um, we, a lot of students, especially survivors of sexual assault on campus, take very serious issue with his statements and his stance. However, um, the target within this protest is not George Will, but rather um, the MSU administration.
2: So it's especially kind of bad that this kind of person is coming to our school specifically because we have a history. Mm -hmm. What what, what exactly is, for people who might not know, MSU's history with sexual assault?
1: Well, MSU is currently one of uh, 85 universities, and that number is growing. That um, are, are under federal investigations right now f- by the Office of Civil Rights but, um, for their failure to properly address allegations of sexual assault. So that means that um, MSU right now is being charged with reviewing um, how they address assault, and um, they're supposed to make positive changes. So their decision to not only have George Will speak, but to give him an honorary doctorate, in addition to all the money they're giving him, is a huge slap in the face to survivors of assault and people who really are expecting more from the university.
2: Um, This protest that we have organized, uh, when is it?
1: The protest is for Saturday, December 13th, and it will start at 8 a.m. It will be outside the Breslin Center, and we're asking for it to be um, a completely peaceful and silent protest.
2: Right now, you're on Facebook, and you already have 600 people attending, right? Mm-hmm. And I think over 100 that that said they they might attend. Mm-hmm. Um. I guess how 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 big are you expecting this thing to be? Um, what kind of impact are you looking to make on uh, MSU's uh, administration?
1: I am hoping this will be a pretty huge event just based on um, the people who said on the internet that they're coming, in addition to the over 30,000 people who've already signed the petition that has put up about this um, subject, um, it's clear that we have a lot of support, and it's not just local. There have been people posting on the Facebook page saying they can't physically be there but are interested in sharing survivor stories or um, in in some way um, showing the administration that they don't believe that this is a good move for MSU. So... um, I think we've reached a lot of people with that. And I think that the power of social media has been really helpful for us in that sense. And um, to answer, you had a question about what the goal is. with, mm-hmm. um, So I think all of us are just really fed up by the administration. And I think um, most survivors have their own personal story of how the administration wasn't supporting them. And it really took a, a move like this, just this huge blatant disrespect to give us all um sort of the what we needed to um come forward with our stories and start like mobilizing more and I I know for me this is really personal um because I've had a really traumatic year with the university and with um being in a leadership position on their sexual assault task force and I was then removed from it because um of my because I disclosed something in a meeting and um anyway so I personally have a lot going on here and um I will just say that I've been getting like so much support from um, friends and family and strangers, and my photo and story has been is continuing to be sh- being shared all over the internet. And I think it's really important that people start to hear about what is going on behind closed doors.
2: So tell us a little bit about this petition.
1: This petition is on weareultraviolet.org. dot org.
2: Okay, and what is what does the petition say? Do you...
1: Um, the petition basically calls for um, people to sign their names to show that they do not agree with MSU's decision to host and honor George Will because of the um, traumatic and offensive statements he made towards um, college survivors of sexual assault and um, urges for the university to drop him as a speaker. And um, student groups are currently working on procuring other speakers. We've spoken to several politicians in the area who have said that they would be interested in speaking. And, um, yeah, we're interested in providing some alternatives to the university if they do, um, comply with this petition and the thousands of emails and phone calls they will be receiving throughout the week.
2: I did hear something about a, uh, a sexual assault victim being honored at this commencement. Um, do you know anything about that?
0: No,
1: I can't speak to that, but statistically there will be a lot of sexual assault victims and survivors in the audience. And that's another huge problem that. Um, we think is really important for people to recognize is that for a lot of survivors of sexual assault, um, doing school is not easy, especially if they're dealing with an, administra- with an administration that um, does not really look out for them or support them um, in ways that, unfortunately, all too many students at, ev- at MSU have experienced from their administ- administration. And um, to graduate from college is a huge Huge um, accomplishment, and it's a day that should be celebrated. And for a lot of sexual assault survivors to be in the audience, watching George Will speak to them is like the ultimate worst thing that could happen to them on that day.
2: Um, you you mentioned that you have a a a personal experience with uh, this thing, this kind of uh, sexual assault on campus. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Um, yeah. I was sexually assaulted this summer during my MSU study abroad experience. And um, I think that I was struggling a lot because um, you don't hear much about assault on on study abroad. We hear a lot about ways to protect yourself on campus and resources we have here. But in terms of being on the other side of the world and going through this stuff, I was feeling really lost. And when I came back to MSU, I was notified that I had been selected to be the student um, co-chair for this task force that they'd implemented as a result of the investigation that they're under. And um, the task force wound up not being, um, not aligning with my personal goals or philosophy, and I saw them as taking a very apathetic and indifferent stance to um, what students on this campus really need And I felt as though I was being um, very silenced in that space, Um, not to mention I was the only student co-chair after um, I'd made it very clear that I didn't feel comfortable with that and that I thought there needed to be more student voices represented in the co-chairs from the get-go. And um, they did not comply with that. And um, I mentioned in the first meeting that I had been assaulted on my MSU study abroad in order to... um, kind of brought in the conversations that we're having just because of the issue that I ran into with nobody was talking about assault when you're on the other side of the world on an MSU program. So I brought that up in order for us to um, address that more and focus on that. And um, then uh, after a a few more meetings with the task force where I was um, kind of advocating for myself and other survivors and making it clear that I didn't feel comfortable with what was going on, I was definitely... Um, posing in opposition to the com- complacency. And then I um, received an email from the Vice President of Student Affairs asking that I meet with her one on one. And then I met with her, and she told me that i was being I was being asked to step down from the task force because of the investigation going on with my case. Um, the issue is that I never asked for an investigation. i um, I did disclose in the meeting that I had been assaulted, but a disclosure and a mandatory report um, are not the same as an investigation and um, they're not the same as an investigation and in a really important part of the healing process for survivors to get um, their power and control back and for them to get a say in what happens next and I feel like that was really taken away from me by um, the university's Title IX director who um, was the one who said that I couldn't who relayed the message that I could no longer be in the task force because of my survivorship. And I've been doing a lot more research into the Clery Act, which is um, a federal statute that requires universities to um, report to the federal government um, about sexual assaults. And I've been learning a lot more about um, what is and isn't allowed under the Clery Act. And um, it says, the Clery Act states that, you can't force any, an investigation on anyone that a report and investigation are, are, very different. And it all. So, um, right now I'm just dealing with trying to figure out what happened there because, um, I'm feeling like I was really taken advantage of and I'm feeling like the system was, um, not doing what it was supposed to be doing. So that's where I stand personally with this. And, um, I just know if this is my story, there are a lot, a lot more stories of people being silenced in the same exact way.
2: So you do think a lot of a lot of other people, this is this is how they're treating them or maybe worse?
1: Absolutely.
2: Um, So could you tell us, um, are there any specific things that you plan on doing at the protest?
1: Great question. Um, Yes, there will be the protest on Saturday. But in addition to that, we're planning some action throughout the week. Um, Tonight, we are planning on painting the rock and um, having a sort of speak out there for um, survivors to talk about their experiences and how MSU's decision to honor George Will negatively affects them personally. And then um, we're, we are planning on having a march from The Rock to um, the Hannah Administration Building. And there we will be having a press conference and um, a speak out as well. On Friday, there will be a board of trustees meeting at the Hannah Administration Building. And then we are planning on having survivors come and speak at that as well. We are working on procuring our space at that meeting. And then Saturday itself will be the um, protest starting at 8 a.m. And um, we are really lucky that we've actually been getting funding from Ultraviolet, the um, website that's doing the petition for us. And they are sending a they're flying a representative out to be with us throughout the week. And they're providing um, support um, financially and through Any other way they can help. So they're helping to organize the press conference and they will be there on Saturday um, and are planning on helping us with funding. And we're hoping to have um, things to pass out to people at, at the um, commencement ceremony to show that they also don't feel um safe with george will speaking we're working on making um cap sized stickers that use the hashtag it's on you MSU" to pass out to people who'd like to put them on their graduation caps and potentially making t-shirts and um we're urging people who um if george will will in fact be speaking at the commencement ceremony we're urging people to um turn around when he speaks to show that they are not receptive to what he has to say based on um on his stance on sexual assault. We are also hoping on putting together a few more things to show that we stand with survivors. The main point of the protest is really to make graduation a safer space for survivors of sexual assault who might be feeling really unsafe and threatened with his presence. Um, I know of a lot of people who are in a really hard place right now because they are in, they think they don't want to go to their own graduation because who's speaking? I've had multiple people tell me that they are thinking of boycotting their own graduation. And it's a hard place for them, for especially for students, first-generation students or who've had to overcome a lot to go to school. It's a big day for them and a big day for their families. So we want to be really sensitive with how we approach this, and we want to make sure that it's coming from a place of um, making it safer.
2: If people are listening and they're really interested, they want to know more, where can they go?
1: There is a Facebook event that is um, called Protest MSU's Choice of George Will as Commencement Speaker. And um, there, are, as of now, there are 617 guests RSVP'd. So, I mean, Facebook, RSVP, that means like... Who knows? But what it does mean is that there are a lot of people who care about this and whether or not they'll physically be there, they'll be showing their support in other ways. And um, you can feel free to search the hashtags. Um, We have hashtag It's On You MSU, hashtag Spartans Will Not, and hashtag MSU Condones Rape.
2: All right. Thanks so much for coming in, Mara.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Facebook post about Mara's story is linked in our website www.impact89fm.org The show tonight, we talk with the founders of V-Day Lansing. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact eighty nine FM. Right now, I'm joined by Marie Rose and B Queener to talk about V-Day Lansing. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so, what is V-Day Lansing?
6: So, V-Day Lansing is an organization that we started together last year. It's a part of the global V-Day movement to end violence against women and girls. Um, there is a vita here on campus as well, um, but basically the purpose is the purpose of it is to have a performance every year to uh, really create a conversation in the community community about violence against women.
2: Okay, what what kind of performance we're we talking here? Like,
6: so it's a performance of different monologues of different women and men's stories um, pertaining to domestic and sexual violence. They're all. Uh really different and come from a lot of different perspectives. um some of them are kind of lighter and and more funny and some of them are really serious. Um, so it kind of there's a large spectrum of the types of experiences people have on the issue.
2: What were your roles behind this?
6: So our roles were, were the, we were the co-directors, we are the co-directors, um, but getting started last year was a lot more than that since it had never really been done in Lansing. Um, we had to do a lot of things from, you know, starting a bank account to really starting to advertise. So I would definitely call us organizers in the movement as well.
2: So this one's Lansing. You said there's one also on campus, right? Yep. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> how are these different? What, what are they different times, different places?
6: Yeah, so actually that's how B and I got started in this movement. Uh, We were in the vagina monologues with V-Day MSU uh, for two years. And after that, we kept thinking to each other, how can we expand this movement um, and make it broader than, you know, attracting primarily students? Um, Because we know that domestic and sexual violence impacts more than students, it impacts men, women, and families. And that's when we came up with the idea uh, to start V-Day Lansing. So um, the performance is pretty similar, but um, instead of the vagina monologues, we decided to do a performance called A Memory, A Monologue, A Rant, and A Prayer. We chose this one because it incorporates men as well in the script, and we really thought it was important for men to be a part of the conversation.
2: I think, we, I think we've all heard of the vagina monologues before. Mm-hmm. What, what is this one?
6: Um, this is basically
7: just a collection of monologues written by other people, so not just Eve Ensler. That's the difference between the vagina monologues and this show. It's written by Mila Angelo, Howard Zinn, just a, a, a bunch of popular, famous authors coming together to make a book.
2: Okay. So more voices can include more people. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So who who's going to be participating in this? Uh we noticed I I noticed you said it's not you're not aiming it towards just students this time. So who are you looking to reach?
7: Everyone. <laughs> But seriously, everyone like we want older people, younger people. We don't age discriminate as long as you can handle the subjects in the piece, in the pieces. Um, but we just wanted to get this conversation going in Lansing, to give our community a voice and to let people know that this is happening. Domestic violence happens to our neighbors in our community, and if we talk about it, we can do something about it.
2: What are your greater goals with this? Um, we've kind of danced around it a little bit, but if you could put it into one one. Uh sentence here a few sentences what are your greater goals
6: our goals are really to get people talking about domestic and sexual violence um and really also you know helping survivors and victims to find solidarity uh, within this movement but really it's more than that it's also a fundraiser so these are benefit performances um and 90 percent of what we raise will will benefit a local um, resource here in lansing so the other 10% will go towards the global V-Day movement, but for example, last year our beneficiary was EVE and Violence Encounters, which is a domestic violence shelter, so we were able to raise about $2,500 for them. This year our beneficiary is CARE, um, and Be can tell you more about that. So really it's, it's also about supporting local resources that are so important to both men, women, and families uh, here in the Lansing community.
2: Do you you want to tell us a little bit about care?
6: Sure. So care isn't a shelter; it's the capital
7: area response effort, and they were started about 16 years ago by um, advocates, um, like prosecuting attorneys and police officers, to help victims immediately after, like it's post-arrest. So if there's a domestic violence situation and someone's arrested, care goes to be directly with the victim. Whereas if you go to a shelter, you have to make that effort as a victim to, like, go look for help or go, you know, to the hospital, which takes a lot of effort if you've just been abused. So CARE goes direct. They're dispatched out by five different police um, departments. So it's uh, Lansing, Meridian Township, Lansing Township, City of East Lansing, and MSU's campus. So they go out directly to be with the victim Mm -hmm. right after.
2: Earlier in the show, uh, we did bring in somebody to talk about... um, the commencement speech uh, that's happening. Have you guys heard of mm-hmm. uh Yeah, yeah, George Will. I'm just out of curiosity. Do you guys have any opinions on that? How are you, how are you guys feeling towards that? Uh,
6: yeah, I definitely support um, the protests that are happening against him speaking at the commencement. I think it's so hard when we have all these conversations happening and really starting and rising as far as, um, you know, addressing sexual assault and addressing issues with rape culture. And it's really frustrating to see somebody come in who obviously has a certain stance on the issue and has um, made certain statements that can make survivors very uncomfortable. So.
2: And so that's kind of the, the same discussions you're trying to uh, create here with V-Day Lansing, right?
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just taking a stand against the violence. Is,
2: is there anything uh, else Is there anything else you guys want to say uh, while you're on air here?
7: Yeah, so we have a show that's coming up. The show will be on March 28th, but to have a show, we have to have people in it, so we're having auditions. Uh, we have a Facebook page, It's just V-Day Lansing Presents, a memory monologue, a rant, and a prayer. Or if you just go to Facebook.com, Lansing V-Day, MMRP, you can find more information about it there.
2: Can you tell us a little bit more about CARE, I guess?
7: Yeah. So like I previously said, they're not a shelter um, and how they were, how they came to be. Um, but the really important thing is when when you call them, they re- basically focus on like the three E's, which is empathy, education and empowerment. So they empathize with empathy listening. And someone told me a quote earlier that I really liked about empathy, but it was just like um, empathy isn't seeing someone in a hole and feeling sorry for them. It's seeing someone in a hole and getting down there and helping them out, which I think is really great, and a really great analogy for, like, what they do when you call and you can listen to them or they can listen to you and just, I mean, I feel like survivors or victims don't really have anyone in their circle or a lot of times don't have a lot of people in their circle who actually understand, like, what they went through or maybe they don't understand, like, what domestic violence is or they think it's only physical abuse, but it can be a number of things from – Name calling, jealousy, stalking, or control. Mm-hmm. So they just connect people with resources to better their life and better the community.
2: All right, and um, you said that V Day was about uh, raising awareness for uh, sexual assault and violence against women, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what 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 are the big, the big problems that we're trying to tackle here with these, as far as violence against women and sexual assault goes?
6: I think it's just not being talked about enough. Um, that's how I feel more coming from a personal stance. I remember joining the V Day movement when I was a freshman here, and uh, that's when I met B. And it was really the first experience of of coming out myself as a survivor of domestic violence. You know, it was nothing I'd ever really dug deep into. And then once it came to the time where you know everyone was sharing their stories of being abused and you know, I remember just reflecting and being like, that all happened to me. You know, there was this whole chapter of my life that was unfolding. And I think that's really what we're trying to get out through this movement, too, is really helping survivors and victims to know, helping them to know that they're not alone. And creating, you know, a movement of support as well as a movement of advocacy, of trying to really, um, you know, raise awareness around it and raise money for the cause um, and bringing other people into it as well, you know, even people like my dad had never, I never thought that he would come to something like that. Now he comes every year, and it's just a really good way to um, get more people talking about it and thinking about it.
2: Awesome. If somebody, if somebody's listening and they sound interested, um, what ways can they get a hold of you or um, see more about this?
7: Uh, they can contact our email, which is lancingvide.mmrp at gmail.com, or they can reach out on Facebook, like I said earlier. Um, and then if you've experienced domestic violence or sexual assault, you can go to the MSU Sexual Assault Clinic here on campus, or you can contact uh, CARE directly.
2: Thanks so much, guys.
7: Yeah, thank you for having yeah, us. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Dressed in embarrassment, I was dressed in wine. If you had a part of me, will you take your time? Even if I come back, even if I die, is there some idea to replace my life? Like That's I'd
2: it for tonight. Thanks for listening. You can find this episode as well as all other Exposure episodes on our website, www.impact89fm.org. I'd like to thank our station manager, Gabriella Saldivia, and our general manager, Ed Glazer. A special thanks to our news director, Stephen Rich, who graduates this week. I've been your host, Quinn Hoffman, and this has been Exposure on the Impact 89FM.
3: of Michigan State University. You've been listening
0: to
1: Impact Exposure.